This is an eight-week series on 11 of the songs of Korah. And uh, we have been uh, purposeful in, in packaging this and, and even sharing this in a way that would give us a wonder of God. That's why it's called the Songs of Wonder. But if we're honest with ourselves, not every one of these psalms is wonderful to sing or to read. And this is one of those. In fact, we come to the most difficult genre of song to sing, and that is, of course, the breakup song. The breakup song. Uh, they are difficult to sing, they are sad, they are painful, but we love them. Why? Because they express how we so deeply feel. And in my spirit-filled mountaintop study this week, I was inspired by the, uh, the mid-1990s classic, pop classic by Tony Braxton, Unbreak My Heart. Let me read you the chorus. This redemption is the point of the sermon, and this example and illustration does get redeemed. But let me read the chorus. Unbreak my heart. Say you'll love me again. Undo, no, don't sing it. Just read it with me. <laughs> Undo this hurt you caused when you walked out the door and walked out of my life. Uncry these tears. I cried so many nights. Unbreak my heart. See, some of us can relate to this sort of stuff. Uh, and for me, her name was Sarah. Oh, I heard in awe. That was not from my wife, by the way. She's also over there. <laughs> but we relate to this. And listen, for, for many of us, and, and even looking back, this stuff is sort of desperate and, and sort of even cheesy, especially as it relates to, to earthly relationships or even those uh, just marked by infatuation instead of love. And, and even though this stuff becomes the, the, the stuff of, of karaoke hour, it amounts to serious heartbreak whenever God is the one that has left. And this is exactly how our psalmist feels. Would you stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word? Just a little thing I like to do in honor of God's Word. We'll take Tony off the screen. We'll put God's Word on it. Let me read for us from Psalm 44, verse 1, from the CSB. God's word reads, For the choir director, a masculine of the sons of Quran, God, we have heard with our ears, our ancestors have told us, the work you accomplished in their days, in days long ago. In order to plant them, you displaced the nations by your hand. In order to settle them, you brought disaster on the peoples. For they did not take the land by their sword. Their arm did not bring them victory. But your right hand, your arm, the light of your face, because you were favorable toward them. You are my king, my God, who ordains victories for Jacob. Through you we drive back our foes. Through your name we trample our enemies. For I do not trust in my bow and my sword it does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our foes and let those who hate us be disgraced. We boast in God all day long. We will praise your name forever. This is verse 1 of the breakup song. Then Selah. Verse 9. But you have rejected and humiliated us. You do not march out with our enemies. You make us retreat from the foe. And those who hate us have taken plunder for themselves. You hand us over to be eaten like sheep and scattered among the nations. You sell your people for nothing. You make no profit from uh, selling them. You make us an object of reproach to our neighbors, a source of mockery and ridicule to those around us. You make us a joke among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. My disgrace is before me all day. 
all day long, and shame has covered my face because of the taunts of the scorner and reviler, because of the enemy and avenger. This is, in part, the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And that's some heavy stuff. I wouldn't recommend listening to the rest of Tony Braxton's song, but you will find, if you remember it, she's got nothing on the psalmist here. Look at these accusations. Verses 9 through 11, uh, God has abandoned and endangered his people, literally preparing them to eat. He's butchered them and delivered or scattered them, door-dashed them to the ends of the globe. Verse 12, he blames God for exploitation. You've sold us at a discount to the lowest bidder. You've made no profit. It's the afternoon add-ons at a garage sale. Sold us at a discount. Verses 13 and 14, mockery and ridicule. We become a laughing stock, as it's uh, mentioned or rendered there. Literally, the term for laughing stock, if it were reverent at all to translate God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word with, uh, with uh, emojis, it would be this. It's literally the word shaking my head. It's SMH. It's that uh, look by the nations toward not just anybody, but God's people. They shake their heads at us in shame. And he's saying, God, this is how your people are treated. But he goes on, and here we see next the most critical ingredient to a breakup song, and that is the singer's innocence. Yes? In verses 17 through 25, I'll read for us. We can read together on the screen. All this has happened to us, the psalmist says, but we have not forgotten you or betrayed your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back. Our steps have not strayed from your path. But you have crushed us in a haunt of jackals and have covered us with deep darkness, deepest darkness. Verse 20, if we had forgotten the name of our God and spread our hands to a foreign God, wouldn't God have found this out since he knows the secret of the heart? Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Bold Old Testament words. Verse 23, wake up, Lord. Why are you sleeping? Get up. Don't reject us forever. Why do you hide and forget our affliction and oppression? For we have sunk down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Taken as a whole, that's pretty intense, but parse this with me. Look at verse 17. God is being accused of faithlessness. You violated the covenant, God, not us. Now, Pause. As we model uh, our prayer life and our devotion life after the psalmist, be careful. If we're not careful here, he ratchets, ratchets up his charge to almost claim injustice. He impugns God's character here. God's word has only good things to say about sincere prayer. It also has a lot of good things to say about reverent prayer. So, Be careful as we model our prayer life and our devotion and our thoughts and our our prayers toward the Lord here. But let's not miss what he's saying. God was faithless, not them. Verse 22 uh, into 23, God is uncaring. Basically, they were martyred for his sake. Now, this lacks kind of the, the positive connotation of New Testament martyrdom. You see that? This is a complaint that we have died. We, as your people, expect prosperity and protection to a certain degree. And if we don't get that, Lord, we're dying. It, it, would, it would indicate in a way and for reasons that need not be if you were 
uh, coming through and prospering and protecting us. We are being martyred. And that's not a reference to the honor of martyrdom. This is a complaint. Verses 23 and 24, God is sleeping and hiding. Verses 24 and 25, God has forgotten them in bondage. And not just any bondage, but bondage as a result of their defeat. He's just left them there. Basically, he's saying, say you'll love us again. Undo the hurt you caused when you walked out and stopped going on and and leading our battles with us. Undo the hurt that you caused when you left us. Or in the words of the Supremes, I, I, I thought you loved me. This is his prayer. He's not left. God has. Psalm 44 captures Israel here in a state of uh, national distress. It's either devastating military defeat or perhaps even as we read with words like scattered, uh, and this, this, this overt uh, sensitivity to idolatry, this could be captivity, like post-exilic uh, writing, even though we would probably think it's during David's era here. But it could be either, either devastating military defeat like we read about in Psalm 60 or in capture. In either case, the, the CSB titles, the translating committee of the CSB, properly uh, uh, gives this section a title called Israel's Complaint. They're, they're complaining. The psalmist, on behalf of God's people, is complaining. And so as I read this, it's really seen in the two sections we read. We see two complaints uh, for God's people by the, the psalmist. Uh, to God. In the first section, verses 1 through 16 that we read, we see the psalmist crying, not cool. Not cool. He's disappointed and it seems offended. He's disappointed because God is clearly not doing what in verses 1 through 8 he's very much capable of doing, right? This strong arm and it's not our bow and you showed favor. Like, where has that gone? I'm disappointed because my expectations were not met. I know you're capable, so where are you? He's disappointed. He seems further than that offended. This is not what a loving God should do. Not only do I believe you're capable, not only do I believe you can, but I'm beginning to question whether or not you're, you're willing Like, do you want to? Is this really what a loving God does? I know you're a capable God. You're not doing that. But you also say you're loving and you care for us. I'm not seeing signs of of that either. His complaint gets ratcheted up a little bit in the second section, as I mentioned. And his cry here, his complaint here, complaint number two is not fair. Now, in this case, we we leave kind of the relational aspect of not cool. I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated, disappointed, and offended. Now we enter a courtroom. And he's saying, not fair. You've crossed a line, it seems. And I'm not sure Israel or the psalmist would claim perfect sinlessness, but it seems that if there were sin or a breach of the covenant, that there would be a guilty conscience, perhaps prayer and and repentance and confession. Make sense? And so I'm not sure they would be bold enough to claim sinlessness, but certainly innocence, apparently Israel, as we read it, and actually this is a great formula for discipleship. It seems that they wanted to know, love, and obey God. Right? Think about that. Just apply that to your own heart and life. How much do you see fruit of wanting to know and love and obey God? Israel seems to have that. He said, we have not, you have not rather left our minds. We have not become forgetful of you. You're in our minds. You have our, our thoughts. He also says you have our hearts. We, we have an affection, a love for you. And he says, our feet have not strayed from your path. There's all three. Like, what else could we do to demonstrate our devotion to you, 
You've betrayed us and violated the agreement, not us. These complaints begin to sound familiar, especially if you've been around here for a few weeks. We've looked at Job and Habakkuk. In Job chapter 29, a lot of similarities here. In Job chapter chapter 29, Job claims his innocence, even using the word righteous. I I am righteous. Again, I I don't think he's bold enough to claim sinlessness, but but a a, a conscience that's free of, of guilt and any sin or misdeed has certainly been uh, repented of, perhaps even a sacrifice made for, and so his conscience is clear, and in that way he is innocent. And then he switches really fast. The tables turn really hard in Job chapter 30, and he complains. And I want you to look real quickly at Job 30, Job's complaint, and how similar it is to our psalmist's. He says, I have become an object of scorn. Okay, we see mockery and scorn in Job 30 elsewhere, just like in Psalm 44. He says, the rabble, the crowd, rise up and construct their siege ramp against me. He's describing his defenselessness against his enemies here, and God's just letting it all happen. In verse 19, he, that is our enemy or our foe, uh, throws me into the mud. We see that in 44. Verse 20, I cry out to you for help, but you do not answer me. You're ignoring me. You're hiding from me. Verse 22, you scatter me in the storm. Also see that in in Psalm 44. Verse 29 here, I have become a brother to the jackals. Even going on to mention that he's not only in the fellowship of jackals, but he's with them in darkness, just like Psalm 44. So these complaints are very similar, and we're not going to keep going. We're probably tired of this already. We've had to sit through our psalmist complaining, whining about how bad he has, and now we have to listen to Job. How refreshing would it be to stop looking at all their complaints because we don't do that. Right? We would never complain in these ways. We would never see ourselves in the text, which, by the way, we prayed for a moment ago. We would never be guilty of overestimating our own innocence. Not sinlessness. We would not go there. But we would never be guilty of overestimating, overestimating our sinlessness or, or having an inflated sense of what we deserve. Not, not me or you. Surely we would never be frustrated when God doesn't provide within our time frame. Or maybe uh, you've met someone who has doubted uh, God's ability or desire to protect you from harm or trouble. Or maybe you know someone, maybe a neighbor, close friend perhaps, who have uh, been convinced that God has treated them unfairly, thereby impugning God's good character. Now, Now we know people that struggle here. But perhaps take a minute and see if you find yourself here. And in a very less sarcastic sort of way, we're going to sit in contemplative, prayerful uh, meditation of these four. We're going to spend 12 seconds in silent consideration of these four. Would you do that? Just turn your attention to these four. See yourself in the text, the complaints of the psalmist for just a moment. Now, if we're honest, we will admit ours are nowhere near as poetic. No one would want to read or sing (laughs) our complaints, and yet we have the very same ones. And I'm not trying to be presumptuous, and there's some of you I've never met, and maybe you're upset that I would make such a bold claim, but, but I have a pretty good understanding of the human hearts from personal experience. They're not as poetic, but they're the same. I am guilty of 
of my own compliance, convincing me, yes, convicting me too when self-righteousness is the motive, but I'm guilty of my own compliance, convincing me that I deserve certain aspects of God's favor and blessing. I, and I'm not proud, I just hope this is helpful, but I'm guilty of having unmet needs and being convinced that God doesn't see Chad. His church corporately, all for whom Christ died collectively, that's easy. But, but, but me personally, that the guy who has a certain number of hairs that he says he counts, whenever I have unmet needs, I'm guilty of believing he doesn't really care for Chad. Whenever I am unfairly accused, I'm guilty of believing God is not concerned with protecting or defending me. And so my own difficulty, my own struggle, my own doubting, my own suffering can call God's character and his, his, his good capacity to bless and, and his desire to bless into question. And this can be somewhat complicated, but we get a little bit of tension relieved by remembering the theme of our study. This is why we're studying the Psalms in this way. This is the, the truth it offers us. So let's, let's remember our study theme here for this series. We do not wonder at simple things, things that do not require at least some investigation. Instead, we wonder at beautiful, captivating things that we may not understand at first and yet feel drawn toward. We wonder at things that, are even, that even appear quite complicated, but nevertheless, uh, nonetheless deserving of deep discovery. This wonder, this is the goal, will no doubt lead us together, even this morning, into a higher, happier worship of our great God, both for who He is and all that He does. It can be quite complicated, we should admit and be honest, to see God in our trouble, much less to worship Him there. It can be complicated, difficult to reckon our difficulty in God's goodness and His ability to, to save and rescue and provide. Uh, yesterday morning at the men's breakfast, Skylar Stuckey uh, told his life story and, and profoundly illustrated a, a pretty simple truth that he shared that I asked if I could quote. Uh, this statement is simple, but the way he illustrates it and the way that we apply it to our own personal lives is massive and never to be underestimated. So don't underestimate this quote. He says, it's easy to believe when things are worship, when things are going well. But when things go south, he says, when all is gone and only God is left, is that enough? enough? End quote. Or, church, Will we be tempted to believe that God has left us? So where do we go to be encouraged in God's love for us? This is what the psalmist wants, right? Show us you love us again. I know you're capable. You say you're willing. Our circumstances are contradicting this like crazy, and I'm struggling. Show us you love us again. Where do we go? Well, Ironically enough, believe it or not, Paul writing in Romans 8 sends us nowhere except back to Psalm 44 to encourage us in this very thing. Romans 8, and I'll read the verses around it. We can read the underlined portion together. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, he says, responding to this and quoting this psalm. No, in all things, even the things listed in verse 35, in all things, we are more than conquerors through him who, what's that word? Loves 
us. See, his love for us isn't contradicted by our experience. And then uh, Derek Kidner, an Old Testament British scholar, helps us to weave Psalm 8 with, with our, our study of Psalm, or Romans 8 with our study of Psalm 44. He says this, The psalm does not develop it, but it implies this revolutionary thought that suffering may be a battle scar rather than a punishment. The price of loyalty in a world which is at war with God. So Paul quotes verse 22 of our psalm. Not with the despair of more than defeated, as we read in the psalm anyways, but with the conviction that in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And all God's people said, amen. So Paul is saying something profound and it gives us great hope. And that is... That we don't have to see God's love through our circumstances. We can see rather, and this is profound, if we could capture this and put it in a bottle and never forget, we would be changed forever. But we can rather see our circumstances through the lens of God's love. And so as we read Romans 8 and we see affliction and distress, by the way, I would challenge you to list your own suffering, and I actually did so this morning just in prayer, applying this to my own heart and mind, made a list of the different things and negative experiences in my life that might cause me, tempt me to question God's love. And I'm just here to tell you, yours is probably bigger and deeper and longer than my list, and yet nothing isn't going to be accounted for Uh, in Paul's list. He says, God loves us even whenever we experience affliction and distress, persecution, famine, danger, and sword. And church, what does he mean by sword? Death. Even in death, nothing separates us from the love of God. How encouraging is that truth? And yet what I want us to see in Romans 8, we're going to take a little gospel detour, which is the best kind of detour. All other detours are terrible. This one is awesome because Paul brings us into Romans chapter 8. And the fact that we are more than conquerors through Christ is his crescendo moment. I don't want us to stop short there. I want us to back up just and take a couple excerpts from Psalm 8 or Romans 8. Sorry. And I want us to see two arguments he makes that leads us to this crescendo moment that even through all this suffering, we are more than conquerors through Christ. Can we do that real quick? And then we'll get right back to Psalm 44. Believe it or not, Romans will kick us back out right in Psalm 44. So this Romans 8.36 is a crescendo. Paul is building up to it. He's supporting this as a, it's his thesis, more than conquerors through Christ. But let's look at two things he makes as an argument first. Argument one in Romans 8 leading up to this is we know God redeems our bodies. The glorification of the body, resurrection of the body is no small doctrine, church. We know that God redeems our bodies. Look at Romans 8. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For we know, that's the first we know, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, the down payment, we also groan with ourselves, within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of the body. We will be freed from these fragile shells to know a glory that dwarfs our pain. The psalmist will one day forget all he has suffered whenever he sees all that God has prepared for him. And Christian, 
you and I will as well. That's his first argument that that says, uh, how exactly are we more than conquerors through Christ? Well, first thing is he redeems our bodies and gives us the hope of an eternal glory. The second argument or promise, depending on how you want to look at it, is we know, the second thing we know is that God repurposes our trouble. Look at Romans 8.28. Again, an often read verse. Let's read the underlined portion together. We know that. All things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him, that is with Christ, grant us everything? What more proof do you need for God's love? And the confidence that his death paid the ultimate price for our sins to be forgiven. And the empty tomb gives us all the hope we need that we too will be raised to spend eternity with him. Paul's saying, what more proof do you need? And so in this case, whether it is your sin or selfishness or our stupidity or that of others that cause us trouble, God redeems. God buys back. He wastes no parts. He makes our mess into a message. Our test into a really cheesy lines that we use. But how true are these? How practical and encouraging are these things? He takes what we've determined are just spare parts. Things that God could never redeem and make something of. And he weaves them into his glorious story. Where at the end he gets all the glory and we experience good. Because he's gracious to us. Our trouble does not contradict his character. And Paul points to nowhere else except for Christ. And not just the happy person and teachings of Christ, but his death, his sacrifice. And in these two things, and in the first argument, we have hope. In the second argument, we have purpose. We have a hope that one day we will be freed from the shell and given eternal glory shared in as co-heirs with Christ, who would have thunk it? We certainly don't deserve it, but it gives us hope. The argument number two gives us purpose, even in the broken places that we thought were uh, irreconcilable, irredeemable, he uses and repurposes for his own good. And what I want us to see with these things, with hope and purpose, with the promise uh, that he is redeeming our bodies and repurposing our trouble is he is showing us the two sides of this coin called redeem. He picture a giant coin and on one side, it's a coin of redemption. And on one side, it emphasizes the liberation whenever a, a slave is bought out of the market or something is redeemed. It's bought out of, it communicates liberation and rescue, right? We see that in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, the first side of redemption. Our bodies are freed. They are liberated and rescued from not just a physical form, but the fate fitting our sin, which is hell. And we're rescued from that because of Christ, our Redeemer, and his work on the cross. We see the second side of this redemption coin in Romans 8, 28, where it emphasizes this idea of purchasing, acquiring, buying back. Why? For the purpose of being used for the owner's uh, purposes, to be reused, repurposed for the new owner's purposes. We read that all things work together for good. And if you're a 
Greek scholar in here, go easy on me, but we should also know if you're looking at your New Testament in the original language is know that work together there is not the word redeem. But in Ephesians 5, Colossians 4, Paul uses the word redeemed in this same way. He says to buy back the time, right? Make much of the time. Make much of time with outsiders, with those who do not know Jesus. Basically, buy it back and use it for your purposes. The same thing is being said in Romans 8.28. Does God not buy back your pain, your loss, your suffering, and use it to make much of himself? And so in Paul's argument in Romans chapter 8, what I love here, coincidentally or not coincidentally at all, he gives the psalmist exactly what he's asking for. The psalmist is asking for redemption. He's asking for liberation and to be purchased back and owned and and used by God in the way that they were before. Look at our very last verse of our psalm. See, it's kicked us back out to our last verse in our study of Psalm 44. Read verse 26. You can read the underlined word with me. Rise up, help us, redeem us because of your unfailing love. Redemption is our psalmist's greatest hope. It's no question Paul's points in Romans 8 is our redemption and God uh, working not just some things or the things that we submit to him, but how many things, church? All things. And I've talked to enough people to know that that little phrase, that God uh, will, will work all things together, that can be offensive. People have experienced some pretty traumatic evil and wickedness in their life. And and I imagine in a crowd like this, many of you have to where you would say, why and how would God even want to use this thing that was done so violently to me? And I think with the grace of the gospel in our hearts, we can say even that or even they would have their eyes open to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And even the damage done would be used to make much of God in my situation. This is what is promised the psalmist. God ultimately responds to the psalmist in Christ. Now, if this psalm was written uh, during the Davidic kingdom, it's in the second book of the psalms, so we think it was earlier If it was written then, it would sound a lot like maybe some defeats experience. It wasn't immune to defeat, by the way. Uh, Psalm 60 kind of speaks of, alludes to a military defeat in the successful reign of, of King David. And so if that's where this psalm is written, God would certainly answer this psalmist's prayer in in future military victories. And they would say, hey, our psalm, our prayer was answered, praise God. If this psalm was written in exile, as it's mentioned, as I described a minute ago, it's it's possible. If it was written in exile, they might have the days of Ezra and and Nehemiah to look for and say, praise God, you have answered the psalm, the cry, the complaints of Israel back in Psalm 44. So does God have circumstantial ways throughout history where he's probably answered this this prayer and shown himself strong and shown his love real again? Has that happened? Probably And certainly in some ways. But where was this prayer for redemption and for love ultimately answered? Ultimately in Christ. If anyone has ever felt justified in being treated unfairly, it is Christ. If anyone who has uh, has ever been or felt forsaken, 
It has been Christ. And if our enemies have ever been overcome or our foes pushed back, to quote verse 5, it has been by Christ. So what do we do? This is how we think we are encouraged that despite these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. That's not just an empty but, but beautiful sort of uh, trite statement to proclaim. It's, it's built on the back of the fact that we are going to be redeemed and glorified and the fact that God repurposes our trouble. Praise God. That's how we think. That's how we should consider these things in our trouble and the character of God. But what do we, what do, we do? Our complimentary psalm, Psalm 85, that Jose mentioned earlier, I'd recommend that to you for personal study. And in it, you will find an outline, a simple outline, that's very similar to Psalm 44, that's really quite instructive for our application. What you'll find in the first section is this, what we could take away as simply praise God for past favor. I would encourage you to start here and maybe say uh, in your own way or communicate in your own way what the psalmist of Psalm 85 says in that first section. You showed favor to your land. Recognize where God has blessed, where he has provided, namely in Christ, but even other circumstantial blessings or what we might call breakthroughs or answered prayers. Give God praise for those. The second thing we see in the second section of Psalm 85 and even in our psalm is do pray to God for restoration now. None of this takes away our our compulsion to pray. None of this takes away God's desire to answer our prayers or to restore us. Even because of past sin, others or our own, God still desires, and we trust him with the details, but he desires that we come to him and, and perhaps be involved in his process of restoration and redemption. So pray. Follow the leading of our psalmist here and pray for restoration. Don't be ashamed. Don't be uh, so confident in, in God using all the broken pieces that you never approach him and say, how can I participate and give you glory in the process? Pray to God for restoration. And lastly, put your hope in God for prosperity. And say again with the psalmist of Psalm 85, the Lord will provide what is good. And whenever we pray that, we trust him with the when and the how and the where, and all of the details. But we, do we declare with faith, knowing his character is good and that he is capable, that the Lord will provide what is good. And in all of this, may we say with none other than Jeremiah, who's also called the weeping prophet, yes? And in what book did he decide to write except for Lamentations? Like it already doesn't get any sadder. There's nowhere to go but up. But it goes way up. Listen to what he writes in Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The weeping prophet in the saddest named book of the Bible, if not the saddest book by content in the Bible, says the steadfast hesed of the Lord never ceases. And I actually prefer the, the rending, rendering in the translation of the CSB. is kind of important. I kind of prefer it. He says, because the Lord's faithful love will not perish says his mercies are new every day for that reason. But whichever uh, translation you, you like, here's the point. We will not perish because his faithful love, by definition, will not. And so we leave today being reminded that our bodies will one day be redeemed. Our, our troubles will be repurposed, used for his glory and our good, all because of his unfailing and faithful love. Amen? Let me pray for us. 
sovereign God, we say with the prophet Habakkuk, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet we will praise you, Lord. You, our sovereign Lord, are our strength. Father, this morning, as we leave here, even just the things that have come to the surface in our own heart, when we are tempted because of our circumstances to cry, not cool or not fair, would you remind us of all you've done in Christ and how you are for us and with us always. And all God's children said, amen.